At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again, and have a blessed day. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kurt McDonald, and I am the uh, teaching pastor here at Gospel Community Church, and I have the great privilege of bringing God's Word to you uh, this morning. Just a special word of welcome. If you're new or this is your uh, first time here with us, I just want to say welcome. Uh, we're really, really excited that you're here, and, and we've already been, uh, been praying for you. <laughs> well, recently, um, my family and I took a trip to uh, St. Simon's Island. It's a uh, little island off the coast of, of Georgia here, and, and we just, we really love that place, and we were vacationing there uh, as, as a family, and we had our, our daughters uh, there with us, uh, Lydia and, and Tally, three and six, uh, and uh, they, they love to play in the ocean. They love to play uh, at, at the beach, and, and inevitably, uh, anytime we do this type of family vacation at the beach, uh, there's always the question, uh, that arises from our two girls, which is, uh, Daddy, will you build sandcastles with us? And uh, I give my standard response, which is, leave me alone, Daddy's on vacation. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I don't do that. I, I give my normal response, which is, of course, of course, you know, we, we always build sandcastles together. Well, uh, this particular time, uh, th- this last time we were there, we were set up really close to the water. Um, so usually, you know, if, if you're going to build sandcastles, you don't do it close to the water. You back up a little bit and build sandcastles. But uh, that's where we were, and that's what they wanted to do. And so um, as we would fill up the sand bucket and, and flip it over, and almost as soon as we would reveal the sandcastle, the water would come in, and it would eat away at the base of the sandcastle. And, and two or three waves later, and essentially the castle was no more. And so it kind of became a game to us. It, it, was, it was me and the girls against the ocean <laughs> as we made sandcastles. And, and then we, we, we got smarter. We, we began to build barrier walls. So we built up these barrier walls. And then we got even smarter and we, we dug a trench, right? A little moat there that would help stop the water flow. And, and so we would build the barrier wall and dig the moat and set up the castles and the waves would come and... Basically, by the end of the afternoon, it was clear who was the victor between me and the girls and the ocean. After we got done, we packed up all of our stuff, as, as you do, you know, you, you know, at the beach with your kids, you got like a billion things. So we're packing up all the things and all the... And as we turned to leave, I looked, and, and where we had sat, literally for hours, building sandcastles, there was nothing. Not, not even a remnant that we were there. Not the smallest bump in the sand. No barrier walls, no moats, no castles, no nothing. The, 
the ocean had come and washed any evidence that we were ever there. It washed it totally away. And as we rode back to our condo, I, I couldn't help but be struck by the hopelessness of atheistic philosophy. Now, maybe you were with me on the beach with the sandcastles, and maybe I just lost you with atheistic philosophy. Maybe you're thinking, seriously, Pastor Kirk, you think about atheistic philosophy on your vacation? The answer is yes. <laughs> I was struck that it was such a picture of humanity. It was such a picture of who we are as a people, us trying to build, desperately trying to build something, desperately trying to make a mark as we, as we scurry and, and go about our lives, trying to build something that's going to last, trying to build something that's going to matter, only to see it be swept away. You see, if life is suffering and then you die and there's nothing, that is utterly hopeless. That is hopeless. That is the hopelessness of atheistic philosophy. That's what it says. There is nothing. There, there's nothing. And so life is suffering, then you die, and then there's nothing. You can try to build all you want to. You can build barrier walls. You can dig moats. You can do everything that, that you know humanly possible to do. But when it's over, it's over, and time will go on, and you will be forgotten. And so it was such a perfect picture of of the hopelessness of atheistic philosophy and where we find ourselves. And so church family, I'm here to tell you this morning that we, we have a different philosophy. We have a different way of thinking. We have a different worldview. We have a hope that is grounded in truth and reality. And that is the reality that this life is not all that there is. The, the reality that there is something more grand to build than your career. There's something more grand to build than your wealth. There's something more grand to build, and I'm about to sacrifice the sacred cow of the South. There's something even more grand to build than your family. There's something more grand out there. You see, church family, we are saved from something and to something. Amen? See, the gospel says that we are saved from sin. That, that's Jesus' death on the cross, okay? He dies in our place for our sins. His shed blood saves us from sin, but we're not just saved from something. That is the individualistic view of it. Jesus died for me, which is absolutely true, but Jesus also died for a much grander vision for us to be able to build. See, we're saved from something, we're saved from sin, but we're saved to something. That is, we are saved to a people on a mission. The people that we are on a mission with is the church. And so the mission is to then build the church by sharing the gospel with the lost and bringing them into the church family, therefore building the church. And so what we are called to do is not to build silly sandcastles that are going to be washed away, but we are called to build the church and the church will stand forever. That's the good news of the gospel. Matthew 16, 13, 18. Listen to what Jesus has to say. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. He's asking them, who do people say that, that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, listen to this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Listen to what Jesus says next. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This is the best news ever. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Meaning, Jesus is saying to Peter, you just made a declaration of faith. Did you you see his declaration of faith? Who do people say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. Boom. He has acknowledged that Jesus is Messiah, Savior. And upon that declaration of faith, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church around a people group who agree that Jesus is the Christ. Right? That's, that's the banner that we're united under. Amen? We're not united under our style. We're not united under our music. We're not united under that we all read the ESV Bible or, or style of dress. or We're united under the banner of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus there is saying, I'm going to build my church on this faith declaration that Peter just made. And the church that I build will stand forever. And the gates of hell itself will not be able to destroy my church. You want to talk about building a life of meaning, building a life that is building on something that's eternal. Give your life to building the church. Because the church will always always stand. And we know this to be true from what we read in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And then I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. God had prepared as a bride, as a bride. What, it, what is the bride? The bride is the The church prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, or they will be his, his church, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You want to know where all history is headed towards. You want to know what the very end is. Where is all this going? It's all headed in the direction of the return of King Jesus, where he sits and resides over his his church forever. And so to give your life away, to give your life away to building the local church, to see the gospel go forward is the most rational investment you can make. You want to talk about making a good investment? Invest in the local church. Give your life to the local church because it will stand forever. If you're taking notes, whatever may come. God's church will stand. Amen? Whatever may come, God's church will stand. So let me ask you this morning, what are you building? What are you building? Every day when you get up out of bed and you go to work and you raise your kids and you eat dinner and you go to sleep, every moment of every day, you're building something. You're building something. Whatever it is that you're giving your time, your talent, and your treasure to, that is what you're building. So what are you building? Meaning this, is what you're building or is what you're giving yourself to, is what you're giving your life to, is it going to last I want to tell you the truth. The company that you work for will likely not exist in 100 years. And all the stuff that you've bought with the money that you've earned is going to be in a landfill. 
Are you building something that is eternal? Are you building something that's going to last? You see, church family, even if you give yourself to building your family, you'll soon be forgotten and you'll just be another leaf on Ancestry.com. You see, great men and women have built empires and nations only to be a footnote in the book of history. Again, whatever may come, God's church and God's people will stand. And so I call you today to give your life to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus by giving your life to his local church. Because the local church will stand. No matter what. No matter the waves. No matter the persecution. No matter what happens, the church of Jesus Christ will live on forever. And so we've been in this study uh, going through the book of 1 Samuel. As you know, uh, generally what you will find us doing is going through books of the Bible uh, verse by verse, line by line. And so we're now in week 25, 26-ish, uh, just traveling through the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 22, where uh, these two men conspire together to attack God's priests and to attack God's people in order to destroy it. You see, there is an evil king over Israel, and his name is Saul. And so God has anointed another king, and his name is David. And God is going to preserve his people. God is going to preserve David no matter any attack that comes against him. And so what we're going to see in this passage is these two men, Saul and another man named Doeg, they are going to attack God's people in order to destroy this kingdom advance. And we're going to see that God's church, God's people still stand. Behind King Saul and Doeg, there is a mighty army. King Saul has enlisted a cold-blooded killer named Doeg, but despite his best efforts to thwart the advance of the kingdom of God, he fails because God's people and his church will stand. Build your foundation on the church because the church will always stand. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22. I'll start in, in verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there was with him about 400 men. This is the section of David's life where he's on the run. We've been following along this story, and we've seen David on the run, on the run, on the run, where Saul has attempted to kill him, and, and David has escaped, and he's escaped again, he's escaped again, and this time is absolutely no different. He is finding himself in this cave system, or the cave of Adullam, and apparently David is not the only one who is in danger uh, Saul's anger and rage, this evil king's anger and rage has spilled over not just onto David, but onto David's family. And now David's family is also in danger. And so uh, the text tells us that, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. 
They, they were on the run with him. They, they had to go be with David in the cave of Adullam so that they would be safe. And verse 2 kind of tells us this really interesting detail that it wasn't just David's family that joined him in the cave, but, but all these people kind of start showing up. They just show up. And, and what type of people are they? Well, everyone who is in distress Everyone who is in debt, everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him. You see, it was, it was so terrible under the reign of King Saul that all of these discontented people are willing to go join the guy in the cave instead of staying under the rule of King Saul. And so they just, they go, they go to him. They, they, they keep going. You see, God is drawing these rejects to his anointed king to begin to inaugurate the new kingdom. That's what's happening. There is a kingdom change over here. We're moving. We're in this in-between time from when Saul, the evil king, is ruling and reigning. We're moving over to this new time where David, God's anointed, God's chosen, the one after God's own heart, where he is going to rule and reign. And the beginning of the inauguration of this new kingdom is to build a people. And this is the type of people that God chose to start his new kingdom. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Church family, just, just take a look around you. Take a look around you in this room. Do you see anybody like that? Don't point fingers. Don't point at anybody. But, but I, I, look at, I look at this room, and, and, and I think back seven years ago when, when we launched this church, and, and we were sitting in, in my house over on Essex Circle, and there was 20 people gathered in a living room. And they were discontented. Many of them were in debt. They, they were bitter in soul and spirit. And, and so there I am at the, at the inauguration or at the launch of Gospel Community Church, looking at this living room full of people that God had brought me to lead, to, to plant this church. And I'm thinking, God, if, if this group of people does anything, it'll be a miracle. And then I got real, real. You ever got real, real? I got real, real and looked in the mirror. And thought to myself, if God can do anything with this uneducated redneck, it really will be a miracle. But church family, here we are. Yeah. Here we are, seven years later, preaching the gospel, seeing people saved. The church is growing. Babies being born and taught the gospel, baptizing people every year. God is alive and God is for his church. Amen. So here we are. Here's what we know to be true. We've said from the very beginning of this study is that David is the foreshadow of Christ. Okay, so, so when we look at David, we're seeing a picture or a shadow of Christ himself. We, we know this to be true. And so just like David, Jesus drew around himself the undesirables, did he not? Who does Jesus draw to himself? Well, it, it's a lot like this list, is it not? Jesus draws to himself sinners. Jesus draws to himself tax collectors. Jesus draws to himself the uneducated and the poor. You see, Galilee, the region that Jesus and his disciples were from, was up in the hill country. They were hillbillies, okay? The, the society, the people in the city 
saw the hill people just like the people in modern day cities see the hill people, right? They're, they're backwards hillbillies, but, but that's exactly who made up Jesus' band. That's, that's exactly who made up the, the disciples. As a matter of fact, once Jesus is resurrected from the dead and ascends into heaven, these disciples, uh, particularly John and Peter, start preaching and the authorities essentially capture them because they've healed a blind man. And the authorities capture them and they're, they're questioning them. And listen to what Peter and John say, Acts 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this is the Jewish authorities. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were, what? Uneducated, common men, they were astonished. This is the group of people that Jesus drew to himself to launch this massive global movement called the church, which we're a part of today, 2,000 years later. Wrap your mind around that. These uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized, this is the key here, they recognized they had been with Jesus. That is where the power comes from. So, so what? They were uneducated. So what? They were common men. They had been with Jesus. Church family, if you're taking notes, the power of the church does not come from the people, but it comes from the promises of God. It comes from the promises of God. How do I know? How, how am I saying with such certainty that the church will stand? You don't think the church is being persecuted right now all over the globe? It absolutely is. Listen, I'm, I don't have my head in the sand about uh, church decline in North America, okay? I'm, I, I know exactly what the numbers are. I, I understand that church attendance in North America is absolutely declining. But you know what? It's exploding elsewhere. <laughs> so, so when I look at those numbers, I'm not worried. I know that the church is going to stand. And I can say that with absolute authority, not because the people in the church are so bright and so bold and so smart and, and, and so well-connected, but I can say with all confidence in the world that the church will stand no matter what, not because of the people, but because of the promises of God, because we just read in Matthew where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So we can, with all confidence, give our lives to something that will not be washed away. Verse 3. And David went from Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Uh, essentially what we see happening uh, in the text is uh, David's parents are getting older. If you remember, David was the youngest and he's got all these older brothers and now David is a grown man. And so his parents are aging and they, they really can't be uh, on the run, hanging out in caves and stuff like that. They, they need uh, some type of more stable um, um, house. And so David sends them to the king of Moab. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, is Moab friendly to Israelites or not friendly? Right, not friendly. So it's very curious that David sends his parents to live with the king of Moab unless you know the little secret about the line of David. 
Now, here's the secret about the line of David. Who was here with us when we went through the book of Ruth? That was a while back, okay? We studied the book of Ruth together, and we learned that Ruth was from where? Moab. Moab. She was a Moabitess. And guess what? Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. (laughs) God's providence in protecting a people generations before. As God said, I am going to anoint my king, and my king will be the savior of my people, and I will protect his line. And God has had this plan from the very beginning to make a people for his own possession, make a people the church. And so how is David and his parents, how is his bloodline preserved? Well, through a Moabitess. How is David's parents saved? Well, you can imagine him going in to the king of Moab and say, hey, I know our nations haven't been the best of friends, but you know my great-grandmother. And so God's sovereignty preserving his people. We find out that David here is in a stronghold, and uh, we don't really know exactly where that's at or, or much about it. We just imagine he's found himself some type of uh, fortress to, to be in. And then out of nowhere, literally, verse 5, then the prophet Gad. Who's that guy? <laughs> well, we don't know. Uh, he, nothing is said about him thus far in the book. He just kind of pops out of nowhere, but he has this word or this thing to say, to David. They said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. Why does he say that? We're not told. <laughs> uh, this prophet kind of pops up out of nowhere and tells David, I mean, we, let's make some assumptions here. We can assume that Saul has discovered where David is because in verse six, it says, now Saul heard that David uh, was discovered. And so possibly the stronghold that David was in Saul found out where that was at, and he's about to go kill him, and so the prophet Gad shows up and tells him not to stay there. Again, all of that's assumption. He's telling him to go back into the territory where Saul is, and Saul's been the one trying to kill him, and so uh, we're not exactly sure what's going on here. Here is what we do know. What we do know is that the word of the Lord is with David. What we know is that God is for David, that God is protecting his anointed. Just as God protected his anointed by giving him a great-grandmother that was from Moab, God's sending his prophets to speak to David, to guide David into a place of safety. We know that God is directing and protecting his anointed king. God is on David's side. And so, Christian, if you're here this morning, while you are not David, you are still God's chosen. And so God is directing and protecting you to be a part of a community that is on mission. Amen? And that is the good news of the text this morning. Now, what we see next is essentially a royal pity party with King Saul, and he's invited all of his closest friends. These two men, Saul and Doag, are going to begin on this journey to stand against God's people. Look at how incredibly and insanely irrational this whole thing is. But again, to stand against God and his church is just that, irrational. Verse 6, now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him, and Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. 
Note the contrast here, okay? Where, where is David? Uh, David is in hiding. He, he is covered. He, he has one sword that he got from somebody else. And, and where is Saul? Well, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear. Saul out in the open, spear in hand, his, his symbol of royal power. And where is David? Well, he's huddled in a cave with 400 rejects. Saul is out in the open under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear, surrounded by his servants who command, listen, thousands of troops. Verse 7, And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me that my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. No one is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. Well, 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 Mr. Pouty Pants. Now, to lie in wait all this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. There is Saul right in the middle of his royal pity party. You guys are all conspiring against me and nobody feels sorry for me. And why didn't you guys tell me that my son had this whole thing going where he was, you know, making covenants with David and I hate you guys. You know, he's, you can, you can almost like hear this like whiny baby tone in his voice as, as he's standing there, you know, with the spear in his hand. And, and it's almost like this awkward silence, you know, everybody's kind of standing around. Nobody's really saying anything, mostly because Saul has the spear in his hand. Remember what he does when he has the spear in his hand? He throws it at people's heads. And so I mean, finally, we, we get somebody who speaks up, but even when Doeg speaks up, he doesn't address the conspiracy, does he? N- nobody really wants to address this. And, and, and it's, it's insane because he has this idea that, I mean, look at the end of, of verse 8. He says, no one disclosed to me that my son stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait. To, to lie in wait to do what? To, to lie in wait to kill him. Saul is is contending that David is trying to kill him. Now, what's the reality? Is David trying to kill him? No. As a matter of fact, if you keep on reading, you're going to see that David has multiple, multiple opportunities to kill Saul, yet he doesn't. All of this is made up in his insane mind, and and a mark of insanity is being paranoid. And this is exactly where Saul finds himself, in this state of paranoia, believing that David wants to kill him. So Doeg, uh, the Edomite, speaks up, verse 9, then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of God, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. Now, who remembers meeting Doeg last week? Okay, We, we saw him kind of in the background. There was one little verse that, that said, oh, hey, and Doeg was there. And, and, and then the story kind of moved on quickly. And so now we're discovering why the author of 1 Samuel kind of dropped that little hint in the last chapter for us, because now here he is after having seen everything that unfolded. But Doeg is twisting the information, isn't he? He's twisting the information because, again, Saul has this 
fear that David is trying to kill him. And so it's almost as if Doeg is saying, oh yeah, I mean, he was gathering provisions, probably because he wants to kill you. Uh, he had the priest pray for him, probably because he wants to kill you. And then he got Goliath's sword, probably because he wants to kill you. And so Doeg is like getting on Saul's good side as they conspire together to go against God and to go against his people. This is what what we must understand. These men are about to join forces against God's people while they only kill the priests and attack one town, meaning the king doesn't like declare war on his own nation. But they are declaring war on the priests of God and this particular town, Nob, where all the priests live. And so because it is an all-out attack on God because these priests are the mediators between God and his people. Again, if they kill all the priests, who's going to perform the sacrifices? Who is going to mediate between God and his people if they kill all of the priests and they kill all of the priests' family? Who is going to pray for them? Who is going to minister to them? These people are all out attacking God's people. And the truth is, the reality is, they are in a long line of people who have attacked the church. They are in a long line of people who have set out against God. They have set out to be anti-Christs. We know from First uh, and Second and Third John, the epistles of John, it says that many anti-Christs have gone out into the world. Now stick with me. What does the word Christ mean? It means anointed. Who is David? The anointed king. These men in the Old Testament are literally anti-Christs. They're anti-God's anointed. And they are in a long line of history of people who have gone against God's people, have gone against the church. And listen, if you're here in this church and you hate history, I'm sorry, you came to the wrong church, okay? Because we love history because it teaches us about who God is and it teaches us about who we are. So here is 4,000 years of history. Are you ready? We're about to do it. Take a deep breath, everybody. Let it out. We're about to do 4,000 years of history. On your mark, get set, go. These men, Saul and Doeg, join a long line of people who have attacked the people of God. Back in Exodus, Pharaoh over Egypt, ordered the death of all male Israeli boys in an effort to snuff out God's people. Then in Numbers, Balak and Balaam set out to curse and wipe out the people of God. And the evil queen Jezebel, the queen who sought to kill all of the prophets of the Lord in 1 Kings. And then Haman, who we met in the book of Esther, who sets out to kill all of God's people. And then nation after nation raises up to slay the nation of Israel and to kill God's people. All the way into the New Testament, where we read that the Roman-appointed king of the Jews Herod has all the Jewish boys two years under in and around Bethlehem killed so that he can snuff out God's king and God's people. Then the governing authorities kill all of the disciples, right, except for one, which is John, and then he is abandoned on the island of Patmos. Then in AD 64, the emperor Nero began to persecute Christians by throwing them to lions or setting their bodies on fire to light his garden parties. Onto Diocletian, the Roman emperor of 303, who had Christians burned alive, crucified, and tortured. Onto the queen of France in 1572, who ordered the death of Calvinist Protestants, and over 40,000 Christians were killed in the ensuing weeks. Onto Charles II, the king of England in 1680, 
who set out killing hundreds of Scottish Protestants because they refused to recognize him as king over the church. They insisted that Jesus was king over the church and refused to acknowledge him as king over the church, and so he killed hundreds of them. Today, communist governments such as the People's Republic of China have continued to destroy church buildings and persecute and kill Christians to this day from Sudan to extremist Islamic communities. Today in North Korea, Christianity and the church is being persecuted. Peoples and nations have continued to sought to wipe off the face of the earth, the church, yet the church stands. Listen, that's, that was barely scratching the surface of the persecution the church has received. That's barely scratching the surface of the amount of people and organizations and governments that have set out to wipe the church off the face of the map, yet the church stands. Listen, no one has persecuted the church more than the Roman government. Okay, go back and do your history. We just talked about Nero and Diocletian, but there are many other Roman emperors. The Roman government set out to crush and destroy Christianity before it even got off the ground. And listen to me, church family, you today can go walk through the ruins of the Roman government. Walk through the ruins of Rome, yet the church stands. The church stands. And so these evil men will conspire to kill the church and to persecute its people. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Build your life. Build your life on the foundation that cannot be destroyed. Jesus Christ and his eternal church. We got to move. Okay. Verse 11. Then the king summoned uh, Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, and the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, uh, so here Saul is about to make his accusations against uh, the, the priests. Here now, son of Ahitub, and he answered, here I am, Lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and the sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait at this day? Again, what, what's the accusation? Well, conspiracy to kill the king. That, that's the accusation against Ahimelech, the priest. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? This is, this is the priest's defense. He, he's saying, who? David wants to kill you? Really? He's your most faithful servant. Verse 15, Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servants or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. He, he, he's saying, David is your most faithful servant. You're accusing me of praying for him like that's a bad thing. He's saying, I, I've been praying for him. This isn't anything new. I've continued to pray for the, the king and his court and all these people. I, I've been praying for David. This isn't, this isn't some type of special conspiracy prayer. Verse 16. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You must turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. The linen ephod was a, 
uh, a piece of cloth or a garment that they would put on themselves as a sign of uh, their spiritual leadership and, and that they were in prayer. Um, and so these men were wearing that priestly garment. That's what that means. Uh, 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. The great irony of this is why? Why was King Saul rejected as king? Do you remember in our study? Well, God told him to go in and destroy the Amalekites and to kill the women and the children and the men and the oxen and the donkey and the sheep and everything. Yet what did Saul refuse to do? Well, he killed all the people, but he kept for himself all of the animals because he said they were for sacrifices. Really, he wanted the spoils of war. And in this strange irony where he refused to obey the word of the Lord in killing these animals, here his servant Doeg goes and utterly destroys this priestly town of Nob, killing all the women and the children and all of the animals. If you're taking notes, the enemies of God and his church are real and they can cause harm, but they cannot overcome. I remember the, the first year. Who was here the first year? Half the men in our church lost their jobs all at once. <laughs> now, you can call that a coincidence if you want to. That was all-out attack on this church. After that, many of our children were in, in the hospital or sick. That was a strategic attack of Satan to hurt our money and hurt our families because Satan and his minions did not want to see Gospel Community Church get up and off the ground. And then just last year, when I stood before this church and I explained to you what was going on with me emotionally, I said that um, I, I was in a deep place of depression, uh, emotional anxiety, and then it was person after person after person after person that came up to me and said, you know what, Pastor Kirk? Me too. So, so again, you're telling me the entire church is feeling depressed at the same time, and that's a coincidence? No. That is spiritual attack. And so spiritual attack is real. It can cause harm. But through all of the attacks of the devil on this church... What are we doing this morning, church family? We are singing to the risen King Jesus. We are hearing God's powerful word preached through the gospel message. We are going to take communion, remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to celebrate the gospel message. And we're going to go out those doors and take that gospel message to the world. Amen? So while the enemy can hurt us, the enemy cannot overcome us. And so this attack is on God's people, God's priest, and, and they're taken out. Even though we were attacked, the church universal and the church global is still moving forward in strength. Last section. 
But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I know on that day when Doeg, the Enamite, was there, that he would surely tell Saul that I had occasioned the death of the persons, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you will be in safe keeping. Again, it sounds like I'm not the only one who is sure that God's church will stand. Here is God's anointed king who is being hunted by Saul, by thousands of troops. And with great confidence, he tells the one priest that escaped, you're going to be safe with me. Because God is going to protect his remnant. God is going to see that his church is birthed and born. God is going to see that his church will continue to go on and grow no matter, no matter what happens. As I thought about this text this week, I, I looked at it and these priests are killed. This town of God's people, women and children, they're, they're killed and I think any, any Bible student would, would look at this and, and we must ask the question, why didn't God just kill Saul and Doeg? That's a legitimate question, don't you think? It, why does God allow persecution on his church? Didn't you hear me just read 4,000 years of persecution against his church? If we're God's chosen, if we're God's precious, if we're God's... Kids, why does he allow this type of persecution? Well, we know the answer from this particular text because of this. Stay with me. I'm going to jump back, uh, way back into 1 Samuel chapter 2. Who remembers who the high priest was in 1 Samuel chapter 2? Eli was his name. Eli was an evil priest and had two evil sons. And because they had abused the priesthood, God decided to remove them from the priesthood, and God made a promise that he would take out that entire line of priests. As a matter of fact, here is what God said to Eli the priest back in 1 Samuel 2, verse 33. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes and to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men." I want you to think deeply with me here for a moment. Evil men, Saul and Doeg, decided to go and kill the priests of Nob. Yet their evil act was not from out under the hand of God's sovereign control. Amen. The persecutions that come against the church are carried out by evil men and they are guilty for their acts, yet... God is sovereign over those evil acts and uses them for good. If you're taking notes, God is not evil, nor does he cause evil, but evil is never outside of his sovereign purposes. 
Again, church family, this was an evil act carried out by evil men. It was evil in their hearts that made them make this choice. But this was a part of God's plan, a part of God's judgment on the wicked line of priests from the house of Eli. Just as evil men crucified our Lord, Jesus was murdered by evil men who decided to take his life, yet the Bible says it was the will of the Father to crush him. It was the will of the Father to crush him. I'll close with this. All across this county, all across this county, people are still in their PJs. All across this county and all across this country, people are sitting at their breakfast tables checking Instagram and Facebook because they have decided that church is either secondary or church is altogether unimportant. That, that's, that's why, listen, did anybody run into a big traffic jam on the way here this morning? <laughs> you didn't. You didn't. But um, there's, there's 100,000 people in this county. There's 20,000 in the city proper. What that means is we're surrounded by people who are at the beach just like I was with their pails and their shovels scooping up sand and building castles, building these castles that will only be washed away. That's what that means. Wait, I thought we're here in the South, right? Everybody's a Christian, aren't they? No. No, they're not. And they're building their lives on their jobs, on their careers. They're building castles to money, to success, to family. And I'm telling you, all of those things will be washed away. I am urging you, I'm calling you, I'm begging you to build your life on the foundation of Jesus and his church because the church is eternal. I will close with a word to the gospel kids workers. All you gospel kids workers who are here this morning who spend Sunday after Sunday back in the back teaching our children the gospel. I want to give a word to the tech team who shows up early uh, Sunday by Sunday to run slides, to, uh, to run the sound. I, I want to give a word to the band who tirelessly practices and plays to lead us in worship. I want to give a, a word to guest services and all those who show up early to open up doors and to make coffee and a word to all our community group leaders who open their house week by week to, uh, to see people come into their homes and, and share the gospel message and talk about, talk about those things. And all the people, all members of Gospel Community Church who open up your, your finances and you give to our church so that our, our church can grow and, and thrive and the gospel continues to go out. All those who have sacrificed even a moment of time in service to gospel community church, hear me, a word to you, not one moment of that has been wasted. Not one moment of that has been in vain. You must understand you are building something that is eternal. You must understand that you're giving your life to something that will continue to go on and on and on and on. Even after they bulldoze this building and Gospel Community Church no longer exists, you know what? The universal church will continue to thrive and strive as more and more people enter into the family of God until that great day, that great day when the clouds are rolled back as a scroll and the trumpet sound and Jesus comes to reside as the pastor over his church. So keep going, church. Keep going. 
Keep pouring out your life. Keep giving it away. Keep building the church because it's the only thing, the only thing that's eternal. Last note, then I'm out of your hair. Give your life to Jesus by giving it to the local church. Give your life to Jesus by giving it to the local church. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died. And it is true that Jesus died for you, but Jesus died for his church. This great verse from Ephesians that we all love, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself up for her, for, for the church. Jesus is coming for his bride and Jesus, his bride, listen, Jesus' bride will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we pray against the enemy, the devil, his tricks, his schemes, and his attacks on this church. We rebuke that persecution in the name of Jesus. We rebuke the attacks of the enemy on Gospel Community Church. But Lord, we know that you are sovereign over all attacks and you bring about good in us and through us through those attacks. And so, Lord, we call upon you this morning to revitalize our hearts and our minds. Give us a fresh love for your church. Oh, Lord, I pray now for a burden. Oh, God, burden us for the lost. Burden us for those who are outside these doors who are not connected to your eternal bride. Make our hearts yearn to see them come here and hear your gospel and fall in love with you and fall in love with your church. Burden us, O God, to see your church grow. And Lord, reside over us as pastor, as senior pastor of Gospel Community Church and lead us on to see more people saved, discipled, and walking in newness of life. Ask all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.